You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Inflation, once again, the dog that didn't bark. Will this appease the bond vigilantes? Next, what's the real correlation between growth stocks and interest rates? And how do you make sense of the ongoing rotation from tech into energy? Welcome to The Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. Later, I'll be speaking to Corey Hofstein, who's a quantitative portfolio manager with key insights on these questions. But first, for today's price action, let's go to Real Vision's Max Weethy. Max, how are you doing? Doing well, Jack. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Okay, so the CPI, Consumer Price Index, came out today. It was 0.4% month over month, 1.7% year over year increase. That it was uh, Max, that was exactly in line with expectations. Uh, what did you make sense of that reading and how did you uh, interpret how the market reacted? Um, I mean, I didn't see any major market reaction. I mean, some of the things that were up on the day, like energy, um, at least from the equity markets, like I didn't see anything there. I didn't really see too much from the bond market, pretty flat day in bonds. So I I don't think it was, I I mean, it wasn't a surprise. It was exactly on numbers. Like some people in the audience, I'm sure are going to say, you know, that, how how can you trust CPI? Well, the market reads CPI, so that's why it matters. Um, and so I, I'm paying attention to that. The only thing I would say is a lot of the things people have been highlighting as inflationary are really kind of just coming through. Like we just had the stimulus bill passed today. It's going to Biden. So that money hasn't made its way in. If, if that's part of the narrative, um, the supposed, you know, even bigger uh, infrastructure bill uh, that that might be coming later. That's part of the narrative for inflation. You know that stuff isn't there. So I mean, as of right now, like it's it's a muted number, and and I think that it matched expectations for a reason. So such a good point, Max. You didn't see a lot of action in the equity market. The Dow Jones outperformed the S and P five hundred, which outperformed the Nasdaq. Commodities didn't really react at all. Oil was trading in a range. It was pretty flat on the day. I think copper sold off a little bit, uh, but. Max, what gave me um, pause or what encouraged me or what should encourage the bond investors is that today, tens of, I I don't know the exact number, but billions of dollars worth of 10-year treasury notes were issued by the treasury. So that's an increase in supply. Uh, And the 10-year, as you say, barely budged. Last year, excuse me, two weeks ago, we saw those seven-year notes that came to market and that resulted in an incredible indigestion with bonds, you know, yields selling off in five, five sigma, six sigma uh, levels of, of sell-off. So the fact that the, the bonds were pinned uh, perhaps was was slightly encouraging. But Max, you know, I, I'm focusing a little bit on the bond market. I know you've got your eye on the equity market. What do you make sense of the ongoing rotation from technology into energy? I know you and I have some charts that we made before this that, that we want to go into. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's what I'm most focused on right now. That's, you know, that's where I am as an investor. So that's where, where I'm mostly focused. And um, yeah, I mean, Tech is is selling off, and there is a clear rotation into energy. And really, if you look at it, energy has been running for a while. I mean, oil has been going up too, so usually they they track pretty closely. 
Um, and, and you start to wonder about whether it's overdone. The move is overdone and, and energy doesn't have further to go. And so if you look at it on sort of like a one month chart, the outperformance is pretty strong. And I think it's like 28%, something like that over the last 20 trading days. And uh, I don't think we have those charts prepared for this, but you go back three months, six months, you know, the same sort of thing. It's really been running. And um, it's outperformed some of the other rotations like financials, um, industrials, and uh, what was the other one? Materials had, had done pretty well um, in terms of rotation, both in the short term and in the long medium term, like over the last few months. Um, but but energy is the clear standout. Uh, but the interesting thing, though, is if you go back before COVID, if you go back before COVID and you look at it on the the one year, I mean, it's, it's a little bit over a year. I think the exact date we chose for this one is February 10th. You can see that just about everything is up except for energy. And then if you go back even further before COVID, if you've been watching Real Vision for a while, you know that energy is a sector that people have been talking about being beat up even before uh, COVID happened. So if you were thinking more long term, like what are if you think sector rotation, tech being overdone, I mean, it's, it's in a 12 year bull market. Um, if you want to be bullish on equities and you think that there are going to be new leaders, if you're worried about energy being overdone, I would say not so fast uh, because we really haven't gotten back to even where we were before COVID. And if if the oversold narrative on energy goes back even further and you're buying that, then we're, we're really not even close. So, you know, that's something I'm going to be paying attention to. Uh, I believe that there is some sector rotation underway. And although I don't have any booked for, for next week on, on Real Vision Live, that's, that's really one of the things I'm, I'm focusing on is to find somebody to, to talk about that. You know, Max, you make a really good point. Uh, Apple is actually still larger than the entire S&P 500 uh, energy sector by a factor over two, I believe. Uh, likewise, you know, there was, there's, there was a time in the, the peak of the summer with the dog days of the summer where Zoom, uh, Zoom video was actually larger in market cap than ExxonMobil, you know, which is the descendant of, of Standard Oil. So things really were getting a little bit redonkulous. And just because we have had uh, a rotation in the other way, it doesn't mean uh, that it doesn't necessarily mean that um, you know things have gotten overheated in the energy sector. Now, that is if you are of the mean reversionist school. Now, Max, I know you've been talking to a lot of people at GMO. You're kind of the GMO guy. So perhaps you're thinking in a, a GMO um, in that mindset, but not everyone is a, a mean reversionist. So, so, Max, it's good that we talked about the, the sector rotation. I know I'm going to be speaking to Corey about that. Um, but let's get into something else that you and I mentioned, which is kind of on the frontier of, of our knowledge, but it's something that I think is important that we bring to uh, the Real Vision's audience attention. And that is the real correlation between interest rates and technology. The narrative, which has been said many times by financial commentators, including myself on this very program, has been that as interest rates rise, uh, that's very bad for high duration technology stocks whose cash flows are, are oriented towards the future because the future isn't worth what it used to be. However, you and I were, were looking at the correlations, and it's a little bit more comp uh, complicated than that. So I know there's a particular chart which, which we've been working on. Um, what can you tell me? It's a, it's a chart on the 120-day correlation between TLT and, and the NASDAQ. Um, what can you tell me about that? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, it goes back to 2013, and there are some... The reason we picked TLT is just so that the, the, the correlation uh, was in green. So assuming that TLT is, is selling off, interest rates going up and, and bonds would be selling off, they'd be moving in the same direction. So that's why we chose that versus versus interest rates. So you wouldn't see an inverse correlation. But basically what you see is this sort of positive correlation with 
um, TLT being sold off and stocks being sold off as that's what's happening right now. You can see that that correlation is true. It's holding and it's starting to build actually, but it's happened a few times before and it really only happens for a short period of time. And then it, it goes the other way and that there's these long periods where it actually goes the other way. So, um, for now, yeah, the correlation holds historically, uh, it's happened before, but really only for short periods of time. And actually in the last, mm, I mean, was it eight years? Uh, it, it, held for less than a year, uh, really just a few months. So we're getting up to that period of time where um, things happen. So again, like you said, are you a mean reversionist or do you believe uh, that these things are, are going to happen, you know, that structural ch changes are afoot? Um, and they certainly do happen, but, you know, got to look at history. Thank you, Max. These correlations are so key. I feel like you and I have just scratched the surface. So now let's go to my conversation with quantitative portfolio manager, Corey Hofstein. He, he's really been in the weeds on this. So I want to hear what Corey has to say on this. Corey, welcome back to Real Vision. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jack. Thank you for having me here. Excited to be here. It's a pleasure. I'm really glad you could make it because you came on uh, with Jason uh, uh, Buck last time and you explained your, your thesis on liquidity cascades. So some people may be familiar with your framework, how you go, your quantitative approach to analyzing markets. Uh, but I want to get into how you're applying that framework to uh, the current moment. And I think it's really important, Corey, because right now everyone's left scratching their heads. Uh, you know, growth stocks are plummeting. Suddenly it's, it's the end of growth. It's the twilight of the growth stocks. Then you have a remarkable rebound like yesterday where Tesla had the second or third best day on record. And, and suddenly, uh, you know, no one's, uh, um, the narrative is, it, basically the narrative is, is changing so much. So I'm really glad that you're here because you take a quantitative approach and really look at the data. So what does the data say to you? Well, it's, it's a great question. I mean, and it is an all-encompassing question. There's a lot of different things that seem to be going on in the market today. I think we are continuing to see a strong retail impulse, right? We can look at individual names like GameStop that are continuing to be highly volatile. We can look at, for example, the growth and popularity of forums like Wall Street Bets, which I think in the last two months, the, the user accounts in that forum have gone up something like 650%. We can look at call option volume. A lot of those um, names that are getting discussed in that retail space are very, very growth centric. They very much follow the ARC Kathy Wood playbook of disruptive innovation. One of the things I've actually looked at recently was scraping YouTube transcripts. There's these very popular YouTube uh, young millennials who talk about the stocks they buy. And I built a basket of some of those names. And it really is astounding uh, how much they outperform the, the market over the last, call it two, three months. If you looked at an equal weight basket of the sort of the top 50 names, it was up 40% year to date in mid-February before plummeting back to earth. So, so the wreck in these names has been really powerful. And we have to ask how much could that potentially disincentivize retail from continuing to buy but we have sort of this next round of stimulus checks coming. And if the polls are to be trusted, there's a large proportion of people who are planning on using those checks to buy into the markets. Um, so that could be a whole nother round sort of a catalyst on, on the way up. So it's it's hard to disentangle what's going on from the retail impulse from the other sort of macro narrative out there, which is rising rates are inherently bad for growth stocks. And we can get into that and whether that actually plays out in the data. 
And then the final piece, which I have just had a lot of fun looking into lately is, well, the really final two pieces is, you know, what is ARC sort of at the center of the universe right now with Kathy Wood? And is that having disruptive effects? And what's going on with the momentum factor? Very strong in tech names over the last, call it nine, 12 months, looking like it's beginning to rotate out. Is that going to deplete some of the buying pressure, actually turn into selling pressure in these growth names uh, and cause a little bit more of a, a volatile environment for them? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let's get, I want to get, let's get into the momentum factor, Corey, because you know, quants like you, they study factors, things like value versus growth, uh, things like the, the large cap versus small cap. But then there's also momentum. What does momentum mean? Uh, if you're buying into a momentum fund, what kind of stocks are they buying? Yeah, so momentum as a factor is probably the simplest, most naive factor you could possibly dream up. All you're going to do is, is take all the stocks and rank them by their past returns. And the very academic definition is normally, let's look at their last 12 months of returns and let's skip the most recent month because that tends to be a bit more mean reversionary. And we're going to rank them by top performing to worst performing and we're going to buy the top performing ones. And what we have seen in the last, call it, most of 2020 is that momentum converged heavily towards tech growth names and really highly profitable tech growth names. So we're sort of talking more of the fang names than than the disruptive names. Um, but what's important is it also converged in with sort of quality factors or defensive factors, low volatility stocks. And we had this huge divergence on the from a correlation perspective. We saw small cap and value move in one direction together and momentum, defensive, quality, low vol move in the other. What we're beginning to see, particularly with how strong the rally in small cap and some of these sort of reopening names has been, which is very much in the junkier value basket, is a lot of those cyclical trades are now starting to become at the upper end of the momentum spectrum. That you're looking at sectors like energy and industrials as now looking like in the next month they are going to be leading from a momentum perspective, which means the momentum factor may start dropping tech names and buying some of these reopening plays, which has a really interesting potential impulse and catalyst for flows moving forward and where buying pressure may be emerging over the next quarter. So, Corey, if I understand right, momentum is basically what's hot now or what's been hot for the past few months. It's basically performance chasing institutionalized. Okay. Yeah. So you know, over the summer, you had the flows into your large cap fangs. Then since then, they've been trading sideways and it's gone into your cyclical energy names um, like ExxonMobil, uh, industrials. Uh, it's, it's so funny. It's so great to hear you say, give a quantitative uh, recon, uh, um, accounting over the past year because I can instantly give names. I'm like, oh yeah, those so those uh, low beta names. That's those are the stocks like Clorox, those defensive, and it really is a great way of chronicling um, of the past year. So so Corey, if momentum is what's hot right now, and if momentum um, investing is basically the opposite of buy the dip. 
what does it mean that the momentum strategies are now oriented towards cyclical uh, stocks away from growth? And do you think that's going to continue? You know, a word that a phrase that I've seen you use a lot is a momentum unwind. What does that mean to you, Corey? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting right now is that the momentum factor has done really poorly year to date. That if you bought the best momentum names and shorted the worst momentum names, you would be dramatically underwater, right? And that's just capturing the performance spread between those two baskets. What's interesting about the momentum factor is when it's underperforming, when all of a sudden you see strong negative performance, it's normally an indication that momentum itself is going to change characteristics, right? Because if everything in the worst basket is outperforming the top basket, well, then it's going to want to flip-flop what's in the best and worst basket. A momentum unwind tends to happen when these baskets diverge too strongly, right? Your outperformers get chased up too hot. They're massively overvalued. Your underperformers have sold off way too strongly. And there's enough sort of fundamental capital out there to say this doesn't make sense anymore and right momentum's not going to look at that at all it's purely technical it's purely based on performance and so you can get a strong unwind when all of a sudden the macro narrative changes in a meaningful way or fundamental outlooks change in a meaningful way and so arguably that's what it looked like started to happen in q4 with the emergence of vaccines and stronger rollout plans and a global reopening, all of a sudden small cap companies that we didn't know whether they were going to survive from a credit perspective had a strong impulse behind them. A lot of the junkier companies that ended up in the value basket that, again, might have been distressed if COVID continued for another 12 months had a light at the end of the tunnel and people said, OK, there's a lot of optionality in these names. Let's start buying them. And so now you're getting this momentum unwind as value picks up, size picks up, growth goes down, that the whole characteristic of the basket is going to change. And every momentum fund out there is going to start selling growth, selling tech, buying value, buying small cap. I think the really important thing to, to acknowledge here is there's actually not that many pure momentum funds out there. If you look at, say, the ETF landscape, there's just a handful and the total number of dollars here isn't that much. What's important to consider is that momentum is a key factor within a lot of multi-factor systematic funds. So hedge funds that look at value and size and quality and momentum all simultaneously. Well, that momentum shift from tech into value is going to put a stronger impulse behind those value names again. And then you're also seeing it as a catalyst for more fundamental managers who may do the fundamental screening for names, but say, we don't want to buy these until momentum is stronger. So a very popular uh, firm that does something like that is DFA, a large mutual fund company that tends to tilt towards small value stocks. They actually have a very explicit momentum screen. They won't buy stocks that have are exhibiting negative momentum. Well, if all of a sudden your value companies, your deep value companies aren't exhibiting negative momentum anymore, they'll start to be uh, buyers of those names. And so you can see a huge potential flow of capital uh, adjusting over the next quarter, again, potentially out of these growth names, potentially into the reopening names. Have we seen that, Corey? Let's take your momentum funds. Uh, we've had ExxonMobil, to take an example, uh, do extremely well, outperform not just the S&P 500, but Tesla over the past um, three months, let's say 40% or so. Are those momentum funds, have they already bought Exxon? Are they going to? Is it in the fund now? Um, you know, Tell me about the timelines here. So it really is going to depend on your definition of momentum. There's some people who look at very short-term momentum, intermediate, longer-term. If we say 
we're really talking about a more academic definition, looking at 12-month returns, for example. Uh, this crossover in returns has really just emerged in the last couple of weeks. And so the expectation is certainly by the end of March, this signal will be much stronger because so much of the tech outperformance versus these value names occurred in March 2020. So once we get past sort of that 12-month window sliding by March and we get into April 2021, we certainly expect a lot of that relative performance to, to taper off. The problem is, especially if you're looking in the fund world at ETFs that may implement this strategy, most of them are only implementing semi-annually or quarterly. And the ones that are implementing quarterly have already done so in Q1. And the ones that are implementing semi-annually are really sort of in this May, November type cycle. And so what you're unlikely to see is if you're looking to get momentum expression in your portfolio using some of these factor ETFs, most of them are not going to be implementing this trade until as late as May. It's really going to be the hedge funds who are looking at this on a more continuous basis that are going to be the drivers of this capital. Corey, let's get into uh, the ARC ETF or the ARC series of ETFs, which I know you have been all over. Uh, I want to get into the uh, uh, the nature of the, the ETF with the uh, um, you know re regulated participants, that authorized participants. But first, let's get into just the simple fact that ARC owns the stocks that are most vulnerable to this rotation from growth into value. Um, what can you tell me about that, and specifically with regards to to real rates or, or interest rates? Everyone says. Um, rising rates are kryptonite to tech. I've said that on this program many times, but I was actually, you know, last night prepping for this, I did a correlation over the past year uh, between uh, the ARK, ARKK and interest rates, and it actually was positive, which, which of course makes sense because interest rates have been rising um, since the March sell-off, and during that time, ARKK has absolutely killed it. Um, so what, what can you tell me about ARKK, the stocks in there, and their vulnerability to rising interest rates? Yeah, so there's sort of two factors here. I'm going to I'm going to touch on the latter one, just this sort of macro view that growth names are more sensitive to rising rates or rates in general. And and the idea there is growth names versus value names tend to be more longer duration cash flows and when you have longer duration cash flows, you expect a greater sensitivity to changing rates. That is sort of the basic idea here. Versus value, you've got more upfront cash flows, lower duration play. What we find is that if we were to look at, say, value versus growth as a long, short portfolio, there is a correlation with changes in rates. It's not independent. There actually is some driver there. But if we break out the two sides and look at growth and its sensitivity to changing rates and value and its sensitivity to changing rates, what we found over the last sort of 20 years or so is that the growth side really isn't all that sensitive or has not been over the last 20 years. It's the value side that is more sensitive. And that's because growth versus value really comes down to just being, for the most part, a tech versus financials play. And financials are very obviously going to be sensitive to changing rates. And tech, turns out, isn't so sensitive, or at least it hasn't been. I think there's this argument that you've got these long-duration cash flows in these growing disruptive names. But the vast majority of tech today, from at least a weighting perspective in the tech basket, is going to be your fangs, which are high-quality, in theory, 
very profitable growth companies, which are just not going to have the same type of um, potential sensitivity to rates that maybe your more junior, more disruptive names might. Which I'm brings so us to ARC, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, so ARC, by definition, and this is what Kathy Wood has been doing for her entire career, is looking at disruptive names. I am not here to say whether that's right or wrong. This is not passing judgment on ARC's methodology. What I wanted to look into was saying, you know, ARC has received a tremendous amount of inflow over the last couple of quarters to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a day. They have an investment methodology where they are very willing to be very large owners of smaller, less liquid, disruptive companies. And they're doing this not just in their ETFs, but in their SMAs and in their sub-advisory capacity at Nico Asset Management. Is this becoming a potentially self-reinforcing trade? That when you start to have a ton of capital chasing less liquid names, is that driving up the performance in those names? And what could happen on the other way out? If, if capital started to flow out of ARC, what does that mean for growth names? Well, yeah, let's get, let's get into that, Corey. What does it mean for growth names? Well, so I think if we take ARC out of the conversation entirely for a moment, because I, I feel like that's such a hot button issue. And I said to you, Jack, there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars a day of new demand to buy these illiquid companies. And that's going to happen over a two to three month period. What would you expect to happen to the price of those companies? Rhetorical question, the price should go up, right? So if we view ARC less as this company and more as just the expression of all these people are looking to buy these companies and, hey, this is the perfect vehicle to buy these companies, well, then the outcome is sort of, it seems almost tautological, right? We This is the expectation. There's a huge influx of demand for these companies. I think the problem with that sort of view, though, is that the demand isn't for the companies necessarily. It's for the manager. And a lot of demand for the manager comes in performance chasing. And so when you have a manager who's doing really well, who gets a lot of media attention, and the new inflows start to drive up the prices of the securities that they're owning to make them outperform further, it invites more media attention, more inflows, and invites this sort of pro-cyclical behavior that can drive the performance up far beyond where it would have been normally without those flows, which leads to a potential liquidity unwind. Now, ARC has a huge capacity to manage liquidity through the ETF vehicle. They work with 20 plus authorized participants that they can use to find liquidity. My guess is they could sell 100% of the holdings of their fund today, and it would be a 10% shock to price. These, these authorized that sounds pretty good. Right? So I don't think it's nearly as bad as people think it is. I think sort of the pain point would be you start to see some outflows, some underperformance, some more outflows, some more underperformance, and it trickles out over a while. It could lead to sort of a, a cascade of selling. Um, but I don't think ARC is sort of this this sort of trigger system systemic risk that a lot of people think it is. Um, it's just that right what has hap what has happened is sort of expected to happen when you see a huge amount of capital chasing smaller, less liquid names. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, Corey, perhaps there is uh, too much ink spilled over the worries about ETF liquidity, uh, that there's not going to be a marginal buyer. And and you've been um, talking a lot about that, and it's great to have your insight on that. What do you make, Corey, of the correlations within the portfolio, the fact that they have similar price to book ratios, they have similar price to sales ratios, probably above, let's say, 10, 15. Um, and, but yet the, you know, the ARK ETF, it is an ETF, so it is diversified. Um, last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I was looking at the pricing of the options. And there was a time when ARK was, uh, put options were substantially cheaper on the ARK ETF than the uh, stocks like Tesla in there. And I was scratching my head thinking, really? Because all the other stocks in there, um, let's say take DocuSign such as there, they have a pretty similar exposure. They are, they are hyper growth stocks. Uh, what do you make of that, Corey? Yeah, you know, just to take it one step even wonkier, one of the things you can look at is the implied correlation of the underlying basket, right? Because the volatility of the ETF should be the volatility of buying that portfolio of stocks. But if you looked at all the put options on those underlying stocks and compared it to the put option on ARC itself, that volatility uh, didn't line up, right? It implies sort of something about the correlation. And what you saw about two months ago was that that correlation for different moneyness levels for how out of the money you were buying that put was completely flat. Now, if this all sounds like gibberish to people, which it probably does, you just have to sort of imagine and, and go back to that sort of market adage that correlations go to one in a crisis. Well, what you were seeing with the, the puts on ARC was that the expected correlations weren't going to one. They were just not even changing at all. I asked a lot of people in the volatility space who were trading this that were just saying, these markets are getting really weird in the pricing of these options, partially because this is an active ETF and it's hard to know what they're going to do and what they're going to trade, but partially because there's just this massive call option skew in these underlying names. When you go to some of these forums, uh, people that are buying in, into ARC are also chasing the individual names themselves. So they look at Kathy as sort of this beacon of, of the types of companies to buy, and they're not all necessarily putting their money in ARC. They might be going out and buying call options on some of the underlying stocks that she's talking about. And it seems to be having this sort of liquidity mismatch. Again, I don't know how much that ultimately impacts the underlying names. I can tell you um, that from the research I've done, and I posted a video about this, is that I do believe there is substantial evidence the flows into ARC itself were driving up prices in their less liquid names, far beyond their more liquid names. So on days you had inflows, you had this outperformance in the less liquid names. And days that were outflows, there was some relative underperformance in those names. And if you had a crystal ball and knew which way flows were going to go, it was a pretty profitable strategy over the last, call it six months. Um, so again, the expectation would be if there are strong flows out, those less liquid names in there would probably be the ones that are getting hit the most. And so if I was thinking about trying to design a strategy that might protect me from a growth route where I think ARC might see a lot of outflows, that might be a place that I would start looking for uh, puts and seeing how they are priced relatively because I would expect extra pressure on those names. Mm. Uh, there's so much to get, uh, so, so much to analyze there, Corey. Um, as you reach to a close, though, could you just share 
your 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 macro view. You know, you said you mentioned a crystal ball. No one does have a crystal ball at the end of the day, but you can assess where the probabilities lies, especially if someone's you know coming through the data as much as you are. Um, you know, in in three months, let's say, do you think that the rotation from growth into value will have exacerbated? Will it have retreated? Uh, what does the the market for these growth stocks in ARKK look like? I think one of the things that we've seen is that um, we have seen a, a couple of important pieces of sort of market indication. One, the valuations between growth and value and small cap and large cap, that spread has has diminished dramatically over the last six, nine months. So you could argue that the the juice that's left to squeeze in, in that trade is getting smaller and smaller. Um, you're also seeing that value names and reopen baskets are becoming less and less sensitive to COVID news. News about vaccines that in November caused a huge dump in momentum names, a huge spike in value names. You're not seeing that anymore. Now, that doesn't mean you're not seeing intra-factor volatility, but you're not seeing the same sensitivity, which again says to me a lot of that really cheap optionality that was priced into these reopening names last June, July, and August, these names that no one wanted to buy, a lot of that's probably already come out. And so now if you're looking at, okay, where's where's the value trade opportunity? Well, it's going to have to be in sort of, um, are these companies still fundamentally underpriced? Is there going to be a momentum rotation into these names? And do I think that that spread in valuations between growth and value is, is still something I expect to compress over time? I think the inflation CPI news this morning, and there's, we can all talk about problems with CPI, but the CPI news this morning, I think probably potentially helped put a bit of a lid on a, a sort of a more dramatic increase in rates. I think a lot of what we saw over the last week was not, it wasn't unexpected that rates were going to go up or the last couple of weeks. It wasn't unexpected that rates were going to go up. What was unexpected was the accelerated pace at when it went, at which it went up. What we're seeing now from a positioning perspective is CTAs, Commodity Trading Advisors, Managed Futures Funds, have really never been more short the 10-year than they are today. So if you're talking about where how do marginal pressures change, well, as those start to come off, they're going to have to buy back their shorts. That could actually drive yields back down. So we're starting to see things where we had a big shock in the last two weeks. I still think my overall thesis around markets that things are going to stay weird, for lack of a better phrase, holds. I think we're going to continue to see these little bubbles pop up. You can spend your time playing whack-a-mole and trying to hit them all as they come up. My view is position yourself for convexity to both the upside and the downside. The right tail is just as likely as the left tail, in my opinion. Um, you know, we've got strong enthusiasm that could all systematically unwind if we get bad news, but we've got a whole lot of opportunity for more buying pressure on the upside as well, um, with, with these new stimulus checks coming out, particularly if they go into call options in the retail basket. Wise words, Corey, thanks so much for coming on the daily briefing. Uh, would love to have you back on real vision sometime soon. Anytime, Jack. Thank you for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.